Good morning. Let's begin with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the spiritual blessings you have in store for us on your day. We ask that you would bless us now as we gather together around your word to study it and to understand it better. And we pray these things, as always, for your glory and our own good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm not going to ask who read what I sent out, but who received my email? Just to make sure that I'm getting good spread on the email. Um, so last week I sent out the whole OPC report on justification. Uh, it deals with, well, the committee that was formed by the General Assembly of the OPC some years ago. They were tasked with critiquing the new perspective on Paul and the federal vision. And it's about a 93-page 93, 93 report. If you can get through it before the end of this class, which is the end of November, that's good for you, and it's good for you to understand what we're talking about in a greater de- detail and depth. Um, so I commend that to your study. And yesterday I sent out just uh, several paragraphs that would have been helpful as we uh, tackle uh, how it is that this the so-called new perspective on Paul differs from the gospel particularly the doctrine of justification, uh, from the Reformed churches. Yes. So is this, is this Well, let's go ahead and start the class with that. Um, today's class. Uh, so the New Perspective on Paul is an academic movement. It's a scholarly endeavor to reinterpret the Apostle Paul, in the light of modern studies in Second Temple Judaism, which is Rabbinical Judaism, First Century Judaism, the Judaism that was in existence at the time of Jesus and the Apostles. So it's an academic movement. It's got several different scholars, and it sort of took root in academia, and then it worked its way into the Reformed churches, and we know it in its... Uh, in the form of uh, uh, what we call the federal vision. And that's because they call it the adherence in the reformed churches of a number of these ideas from the new perspective on Paul. They call themselves the federal vision. So before we're done, Lord willing, that's where we'll end. We're going to end with a discussion of how this has worked its way into the reformed churches in the form of the federal vision. So that'll be the main topic on the last class, two weeks from today, Lord willing. So, let's talk about the first scholar um, to broach a set of ideas which came to be known later as the new perspective on Paul. Sort of like planting the seed that was later to grow into the new perspective on Paul. There was a guy uh, named Christer Stendhal, and... He delivered a, a lecture and a paper uh, called, uh, if memory serves, something like uh, The Apostle Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West. And his idea, the seed that he planted, was that the idea of a, the Lutheran Paul. And that idea was that Luther had a very tender conscience. 
And he was really plagued in his soul about his sins. As a result of his internal turmoils, his personality, he interpreted Paul to be like the Roman Catholicism of his own day, medieval Roman Catholicism, which Luther interpreted to be a works righteousness religion. I can only be coming to God's favor by my works. Well, that was Luther's struggle with Roman Catholicism, okay? Christopher Stendhal is saying. And he read that struggle, his internal struggle with his sinfulness and his conscience, and his struggle with Roman Catholicism, which Luther took to be a works righteousness religion, and he projected that onto the writings of the New Testament. He read into the lines of Paul, for, for, uh, for instance, this struggle against a works righteousness religion. And it was all just a Lutheran idea. It was based in Luther's personality and his personal struggles against Rome. And so that was the seed planted in academia, you know, in New Testament studies uh, at the beginning of this movement. Does everybody get that much so far? The idea is, again, that... When we're reading the New Testament as Reformed people, we're reading it, according to this theory, we're reading it through the perspective of Luther. Luther's take on Paul. Luther's take on Paul is, again, according to this view, twisted a little bit by who Luther was as a person and his struggles against Rome which Luther took to be a works righteousness religion. And Luther, as he read the New Testament, read his struggles against Rome onto the struggle between Paul and the Judaizers or first, you know, Second Temple Judaism. So the idea is we're not reading Paul correctly according to what he was really struggling with against you know, his contemporaries. If we try to stand in the shoes of Luther... That's the theory. Does everybody get that? Okay. So that's the beginning of the new perspective on Paul. Once that seed was planted, it began to take shape through other scholars. And it really uh, took off with a scholar named uh, E.P. Sanders. And E.P. Sanders was a scholar at Duke. And so he took this, basically the torch from Christer Stendhal, and he ran with it. Assuming, you know, Christer Stendhal's take to be the accurate one, he built on top of that. So again, what we're doing is we're dealing with the new perspective on Paul and uh, their understanding of what's really going on between Paul and his contemporaries, which uh, we disagree with. So, again, Second Temple Judaism is the, is the topic of discussion. What is it really teaching? Is it a works righteousness religion like Luther and the other reformers took it to be when they read their New Testament? Or are they reading the New Testament in light of their own generation's struggles with Roman Catholicism? 
which they took to be a works righteousness religion. So it all boils down to what is Second Temple Judaism? Is Second Temple Judaism uh, a works righteousness religion, or isn't it? Well, Sanders is the first one, the first scholar to really kind of look at Second Temple Judaism and come up with a thesis, a comprehensive thesis of what it was. So, again, Second Temple Judaism. What I mean by that, you know, the first temple was built by who? Solomon. Solomon. Very good. The second temple was built by who? Herod. Very good. So by second temple Judaism, we're talking about first century Judaism. Judaism as it was in the first century in the time of Jesus and the apostles. So anytime I mention second temple Judaism, that's what I'm talking about. The Judaism of the days of the apostles. And... Uh, sometimes I'll maybe I'll say two TJ or something to make it make it faster. But anyway, so Sanders, we're talking about him and how he took up this torch from uh, Christopher Stendhal, analyzing the reformers, particularly Luther's interpretation of the New Testament, in light of their struggles with Roman Catholicism. So Sanders claims that the literature of Second Temple Judaism proves when you examine it in its own right. That Second Temple Judaism was not a religion of works righteousness, Sanders maintains. And so, he claims, the Reformers, not only Luther, had in their fight against Roman Catholicism projected onto the battle between Paul and the Jews of his day, again, Second Temple Judaism, their own perception of Roman Catholicism. Since they held, the Reformers held Roman Catholicism to be a religion of works righteousness, they read the New Testament through that lens and mischaracterized Paul's issues with Second Temple Judaism as if he too was fighting against a religion of works righteousness as they were. But, and here's what, you know, uh, Sanders is saying that's all wrong, and here's the right way to understand what Paul's issues were. With Second Temple Judaism. Paul's issues, according to the new perspective on Paul, his issues with Second Temple Judaism, uh, let me see, Paul's real problem, wrong part of my notes there, sorry. Paul's real problem with Second Temple Judaism, according to the new perspective, as this thesis goes, wasn't that it was a religion of worse righteousness. It was that the Jews were being were using the dietary laws and the Sabbath rules and circumcision as a means of excluding those whom God was bringing into the kingdom, namely believing Gentiles. And that's it. That's all that Paul was fighting against within the Judaism of his day. Uh, that they were you know, chauvinistically excluding the, the Gentiles from coming into the kingdom. Uh, and they were using the Sabbath and circumcision and the dietary laws to hedge them out. Okay. So, let's say we're reading, you're reading along in your New Testament, and you see Paul criticizing people that think they can be justified by the works of the law. The way we've understood it as Reformed people, going all the way back to you know, Luther, Calvin, and the other Reformers, was 
Paul is criticizing his fellow Jews of that day for believing that they could be justified before God by the works of the law. That's how we read it. That's how your church interprets it. The new perspective, in this case, E.P. Sanders, he is saying that actually you're not reading Paul correctly. What Paul is really saying there isn't that they're trying to be justified before God on the account of their works. It's merely Paul criticizing the Jews of using these three works of the law I mentioned to exclude Gentiles from the kingdom. That's all Paul is saying, according to the new perspective. Yes? Well, I mean, it was a question amongst Jewish converts to Christianity what the Gentiles had to do in order to be, you know, true disciples of Jesus. They maintained they had to be circumcised, right? Paul's saying that's wrong. But right now, I mean, let's focus on, let's say, the religious aspects of Judaism. What makes up the religion of Judaism? Is it or is it not a works righteousness religion? See, that's the question when Paul criticizes this idea of being justified or righteous before God on the basis of the works of the law. Is he saying that you're just excluding Gentiles from the kingdom with works of the law, works of the law meaning only these ceremonial law things, <coughs> dietary law, uh, dietary laws, circumcision, and the Sabbath rules. Or, as, as the reformers have maintained, is Paul criticizing them for trying to be justified before God and righteous in his sight by virtue of works righteousness? And that's, that's what he means by the works of the law. So that's the, that's the dispute. There is a doctrinal dispute going on between Paul and his contemporaries over what is how you become right in God's sight. So we'll focus on the doctrinal part of Judaism less than the ethnic part of Judaism. But the ethnic part of Judaism is wrapped up in it, as you can see, because it's, it's very much a national chauvinistic idea that you can't come into the kingdom unless you're Jewish. And the Jewishness, as they would define it, uh, would involve the ceremonial laws, which, you know, in the first century, there was going to be some confusion about how much of the ceremonial laws, if any, Gentile converts would have to do. Would they have to get circumcised and things? But that's a larger issue, different issue, the, the, the specific issue we need to focus on. When Paul talks about the works of the law and he criticizes it and he says, no, you need to be, have faith in Christ, not the works of the law. 
is he's saying you just need to trust in Christ and not try to believe that you're going to come into God's favor by the works of the law? Or is he just saying, like the new perspective is suggesting, that works of the law does not mean like the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. It just means these little aspects of the ceremonial law that the first century Jews are using to keep Gentiles out of the kingdom. Uh, not necessarily, no. No, I would say no. More, more nationalistic, right? Uh, born into the... He's talking about, no, he's comparison Christianity against Judaism as religions. And we'll talk about what Judaism is uh, directly. All right, let's, uh, let's, let's move forward. Now, one of the other lights of new, the new perspective is N.T. Wright. And you know, uh, I won't say that. Uh, N.T. Wright, um, and he's one of the, uh, the scholars of new, the new perspective who's really had a great influence within the church. He himself is a churchman as well as a scholar. He's, a, he's, a, he's the Bishop of Durham in the Anglican Church. And so he's, he, he writes in a winsome way, and, and so he's, he's had more influence probably within the churches than E.P. Sanders has. But again, he is also building on E.P. Sanders the way E.P. Sanders built on Custer uh, Stendhal. But, you know, as an academic movement, it's not monolithic. It's not like a confession. So eat like N.T. Wright and E.P. Sanders and J.D.G. Dunn or whatever. He's, all these guys have initial... Uh, James Dunn, thank you. Uh, they're all going to have different nuances and emphases. But there's certain things that combine them, and it's this idea of what, what's meant by the works of the law, what's Paul getting at when he criticizes it and says no faith, not works of the law. They share all those uh, ideas. N.T. Wright also argued that the tradition of Pauline interpretation has manufactured a false Paul by manufacturing a false Judaism for him to oppose. You get the idea there? The idea that we have and the reformers had about Second Temple Judaism is not true. We've manufactured it. It's actually a religion of grace. It's not a religion of works righteousness. Sanders, back to Sanders, he went on to claim that the Judaism of Paul's day, Second Temple Judaism, was in fact a religion of grace. It was a religion where God admitted you to his people by grace, but you remained within his covenant by works. Okay, so I'll repeat that. Sanders went on to claim that the Judaism of Paul day, Paul's day, Second Temple Judaism, was in fact a religion of grace, that it was a religion where God admitted you to his people by grace, but you remained within his covenant by works. And Sanders coined the term for this religion. Second Temple, he characterizes Second Temple Judaism as covenantal gnomism. Covenantal gnomism. What that means is covenantal law keeping. So you might have been brought in by grace, but you stay in that position of grace by your law keeping. By following the rules of the covenant. 
Okay. Now, to this point, are we pretty much understanding the basic thesis of the of, uh, new perspective? That we're saying that the Judaism of Paul in Jesus' day was a religion of grace. We misunderstand that, misperceive that, if we stand in the shoes of the reformers. Because when they are reading the New Testament, Jesus and Paul interacting, particularly Paul, interacting with Judaism, they're seeing it through the lens of their own struggles against Roman Catholicism. That's where we need to all be on the same page. Okay, so there's some problems. Uh, you won't be surprised to hear from me with the new perspective. First of all, and I should have looked up the references. I meant to do that in the confession before I got here. Um, there are some problems with Sanders' thesis. We'll focus at the moment on Sanders' ideas, his, his doctrines, for, for lack of a better word, and some of the implications of what he's saying. There'll be some dove, dovetailing, some overlapping between what I'm saying and what report on justification says when it criticizes the new perspective. But I'm going to bring forward some other arguments as well. Okay, so what would be the implications upon our doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture if we were to sign on to the new perspective on Paul? I'll, I'll repeat that question. Are there implications on our doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture if we were to adhere to the new perspective about Second Temple Judaism and its true nature? It's a tough question, I think. Can somebody... Uh... Well, it, it, the text either means what it says, or you have to have all of this additional information to understand what the text says. And where are you getting that information from? Uh... Honestly, I'm not sure where he's getting his information. Okay, well, he gets his information, and that, and you nailed it on that. You nailed it. It's uh, What the New Perspective is saying is that as you read your New Testament, it doesn't mean what you see. It, doesn't, it means something different. It means something very hard to determine upon reading the text themselves. You can only understand this New Testament and Paul's writing if you're an expert in Second Temple Judaism. So for 2,000 years, until E.P. Sanders came along to examine in depth the Jewish writings of Judaism and the Targums and Aramaic and all these other sources that only the, you know, a, a, a unique and very small set of scholars can master, then you won't understand the Bible. That makes the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture, that the Scriptures understood by the ordinary person. I mean, they can be understood by the ordinary person, is the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture. And the perspicuity of Scripture, the, the clearness of Scripture, is also implicated. So in other words, I'm, I'm saying that the New Perspective scholars are gaslighting the church. Now, gaslighting is a term that we see, we see it thrown around a lot, but not everybody knows that it's 
the, we get the idea of gaslighting from a movie in the 1930s. It's a great movie. And in this movie, um, what's her name? The actress there that was in the Bogart movie. I'm sorry? Ingrid Bergman, thank you. Ingrid Bergman. She marries a guy, and this guy, it's a long story, but he tries to convince her she's crazy. And he does that by making her doubt what she's seen and heard and remembers. Okay? And he does this, and it's really good the way, the way they do it in the movie. And the guy's just a, a twisted maniac, but very clever. And gaslighting means don't believe what you see, don't believe what you hear, don't believe what you remember. Here's the reality. And that's essentially what the new perspective is doing to the church. For the last 2,000 years, yeah, you've read the Bible this way. But don't believe your eyes. Works of the law does not mean what you believe it means when looking at the Bible as a whole. It means what we are telling you it means, based on our highly specialized scholarship in Second Temple Judaism. So they're gaslighting the church. They're saying, don't trust your eyes. Paul is not opposing faith to legalism, that is, justification by works of the law. He's only opposing, as I said, the idea that Second Temple Judaism of his day was excluding Gentiles from the kingdom or from God's favor in any way by standing upon these ceremonial observances of circumcision, dietary laws, and the Sabbath observance, the rules of the Sabbath. Okay. Another uh, principle that's threatened by the new perspective is the Reformation belief that the Scripture interprets itself. The Scripture interprets itself. And you can see all these are tied, tied together. The sufficiency of Scripture, the clearness of Scripture, and the fact that we believe that the Scripture interprets itself. That you will attain to a, a sufficient understanding of the Bible by interpreting questionable, difficult passages in light of other parts of the Bible that aren't so unclear. That's a Reformation principle. We believe the Bible will sufficiently, sufficiently interpret itself. What the new perspective is suggesting is that you need a, a new high priestly class to tell you what the Bible means. When Paul says works of the law, faith, here's what it means. And so you can't look at other parts of the Bible to interpret what Paul means. Like another apostle, like James or uh, the Gospels or the Old Testament, the prophets. You can't attain to a proper understanding of what Paul means by consulting other parts of the Bible. You have to consult my scholarship in Sento Temple Judaism. So another Reformation principle that we stand upon, the one that scripture interprets itself, uh, is threatened. It's replaced by a priestly class. Inconveniently arriving on the scene after 2,000 years of church history to tell us, by virtue of their specialized knowledge of Judaism at that time, are the only ones who can tell us Paul's true meaning. In other words, can interpret the New Testament correctly. So, let's also talk a little bit about Sanders' methodology. Um, 
Let's talk about his methodology. I'm going to maintain before you that Sanders engaged in what we could call cherry-picking when he examined the sources of Second Temple Judaism, what lawyers call special pleading. You only bring forward those cases or that language that supports your case and leave in the background, in obscurity, the information or the case law or the arguments that don't support your thesis. And I'll prove that shortly. So that's what... Not only I am saying he has done, but others have say, say he does as well. He, he's, he engages in cherry-picking from Second Temple Judaism. But they also, he and, and other members of this new perspective movement, other representatives of it, they also engage in cherry-picking from Paul. They subscribe, the new perspective, to the view that not all the letters that you and I take to be from the Apostle Paul are in fact from the Apostle Paul. And by doing that, by focusing on those parts of Paul that they think will support their arguments and excluding all the other language from the Apostle Paul that they feel is inconsistent with their arguments, they're engaging in cherry-picking within Paul as well and aren't telling you the whole story. It's very convenient when you can do that sort of thing. And this, this, this traces back this idea that there are certain undisputed uh, letters of Paul, but there are other questionable, and it's best if we dismiss those as not being from Paul, but maybe his later, his, excuse me, his disciples, his circle, in the next generation or two later. They might have written Ephesians or Philippians. But they say that the undisputed letters of Paul are Romans, Galatians, interestingly, and First and Second Corinthians. The rest of them aren't genuinely Paul, they aren't from his pen. And the basis for that is this idea that goes back to a school in Germ Germany, Tübingen, and a scholar named F.C. Bauer, who maintained that what's going on in the New Testament is a conflict between Gentile Christianity and Jewish Christianity between Paul and Barnabas and the Gentile Christians and the pillars in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John, and those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and Judah. And that every part in the New Testament that where you can discern a conflict between those two parties is genuine, is authentic. Paul actually wrote that probably. But anything you find in the New Testament which shows them getting along that's suspect. So they impose this construct on what's going on in first century between Paul and the other apostles. And if something, if a letter of Paul doesn't measure up to that construct, it's out. So you can see how arbitrary this, these are undisputed letters of Paul and these are the disputed letters. Well, we don't discern, a, you know, we, don't, we, don't, we don't see a problem with the rest of the, the, the Pauline corpus. Uh, and we don't see that as a sufficient grounds to exclude the other writings of Paul from what we will consider to be authoritative scripture. Okay. All right. Now let's move on to another issue with Sanders' scholarship. Uh, 
He portrays for us Second Temple Judaism, right? He tells us it's this way, it's religion of grace, not of works righteousness, right? That that's a made-up thing, because the Reformers wanted to see that in the New Testament, to vindicate their struggles against Rome. But uh, have anybody ever heard of a scholar, a rabbinical scholar? So probably not. Jacob Neusner? Uh, if there is one person that could be characterized as the foremost scholar on rabbinical Judaism, including Second Temple Judaism, in the world, it would be Jacob Neusner. He has written, he has edited the, the Mishnah, he has written more monographs, collaborative works, and essays and papers on these subjects than anybody else in the world prior to his death a few years ago. And in this book, Rabbinical Judaism, Structure and System, he interacts with Sanders and Sanders' theses about Second Temple Judaism. I'll read you some quotes here. Now, not everything he says about Sanders' characterization of Judaism of that day is negative. There are a few places where he says he got that right, he got this right, but I'm going to focus on the criticisms because that's what's most relevant to us today. Okay. On page 7 of this book, here's what he says. Um... Where should I best pick up this? He, Sanders, distinguishes among Judaisms in his first work, Sanders' first work, with special reference to the Dead Sea Scrolls and Rabbinic Judaism in comparison to Paul's system. And he, Sanders, finds characteristics of a single Judaism with special reference to what he calls covenantal gnomism, shared among the carefully distinguished systems. So what... He's saying here is that Sanders sees in the many Judaisms of the day, and I'll talk about that in a minute, a single unifying common, lowest common denominator Judaism. And he, he'll criticize that rather colorfully in a moment. Um, that work, his, Sanders' first work, presents problems of a historical and hermeneutical character in the more recent volume, a latter work of Sanders, by contrast, Sanders joins all evidences concerning Judaic religious systems into a single harmonious Judaism, the equivalent to the New Testament harmonies of the Gospels that people used to put together. Skipping down here, he says, Sanders has fabricated a single Judaism out of the mass of mutually contradictory sources. But others did the work with greater acumen and discernment. And when we examine Sanders' results closely, we see that there is less than meets the eye. Sanders really thinks that any and every source, whoever wrote it, without regards to its time or place or venue, tells us about one and the same Judaism. Again, he says, his fabricated Judaism down below. It is a Judaism that flourished everywhere but nowhere. A Judaism that we find all the time but in no one period, represented equally by the historical Moses and the rabbinical, uh, rabbinical one. Um, let me move on here. Some other highlighted things I thought I'd share with you. Sanders sees unities where others have seen differences. 
The result of his Judaic equivalent of a harmony of the Gospels is simply a dreary progress through pointless information. Again, he uses the term fabrication of a single Judaism. <clears throat> Let me talk a little bit about that. There were a number of different Judaisms in that day in Second Temple Judaism. So you can't really say Second Temple Judaism. You have to say Second Temple Judaisms. You had, you had your Pharisees. They had one perspective, one representation of what true Judaism was. You had your Sadducees. They had a different, more temple-oriented, rather than law-oriented understanding of Judaism. You had your Essenes. They had a totally different one. They condemned the Pharisees and the Sadducees, especially the Sadducees, uh, as being, you know, purveyors of a false religion, among other problems. So, uh, and then you had your perspective of more intellectual, more uh, philosophical-oriented Judaisms, like the ones that would, that like Philo in Egypt, and you had Josephus, and you had all these different uh, representatives of Judaism of the day. And Sanders, what he would do is he'd go along on each group and school of thought, you know, and cobble together what he felt was a unified representational core of Judaism and present that as Second Temple Judaism, as a religion of grace. So he engaged in cherry-picking, not only within the corpus of Paul, but also within the body of available Judaisms. He would cobble together a fictitious, what was the word he used? Fabricated Judaism? Uh, he stresses, he says, and in his stress on common denominator Judaism. So you can see that he's attacking his methodology. This, the foremost scholar on rabbinical Judaism is attacking his representation and his, of the realities of the case and his methodology. Now the thing about Jacob Neuser was that he was not, obviously he's interacting with Sanders, a, you know, a, a putatively Christian scholar. Uh, this rabbinical scholar had co-written books with Christian theologians, and so he really had his fingers on the pulse of, you know, academic movements within Christianity as well. So he wasn't a stranger to the, the fact that the new perspective was making inroads into Christian theology, and so it's not surprising that he would interact with uh, his writings the way he does in this book. Let me see. All right. Let's also consider now, let's ask the question, why would the new perspective on Paul, why would it be a new perspective on Paul? Why not a new perspective on the New Testament? Why not a new perspective on Jesus, Paul, and James, and the other apostles? And that's because by isolating Paul not only this, you know, certain works within Paul's body of writing, not only isolating certain parts of Second Temple Judaisms uh, from one another and cherry-picking from them uh, to, to, to portray it as a unified whole, but also separating Paul's writing from Jesus' doctrine in the same New Testament, separating it from... James and others. The reason why you can get away with portraying Paul the way you do to the church, I mean, not just as an academic you know, exercise and how many angels can dance on the head of a pen or something, but 
to convince the church of these things, the church has to take cognizance of the fact of his methodology, uh, Sanders' methodology, uh, as we have done this morning, but also take note of the fact that Paul is being examined in isolation from other parts of the Bible. We as a church don't do that and can't do that. We all be- we believe it's all 66 books of this canon is the, is the, of the Bible is the word of God. It's all authoritative. And inter- as I said before, it interprets itself. And so they can only hope to get away with recharacterizing, rehabilitating Second Temple Judaism in the eyes of the church. Because we read it through the New Testament and we understand it to be a works righteousness religion. Um, and they come along and say, no, it's religion of grace, and we're going to convince you from that, not from the whole New Testament, not from the writings of, you know, the the apostles about Jesus, the gospel writers, what he says, not what James says, not what Peter says, but just part of what Paul says. And it's, it's really shocking that so many in the church have just said, yeah, this is, this is the truth. This is the way we should understand our New Testament. So they've isolated Paul from the Lord Jesus in this project. But why? And from the rest of the New Testament writers too. They first of all feel free to do that because these scholars are not the church. They are academics of varying levels of attachment to the church. And they can only hope to succeed in redefining and rehabilitating Second Temple Judaism in the church's eyes and carrying their thesis about what Paul really meant, first by excising Paul's other epistles from consideration, second by isolating Paul from Jesus and from other New Testament writers, and indeed from the entire rest of the Bible, and third by engaging in special pleading in their representations about the Judaism of the Second Temple Judaism period. Let's close by looking at Luke 18, verse 9 to 14. The Gospel of Luke 18, 9. The Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, then he says the following, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In Jesus' handling, which of the two men represented the prevailing religious standards of the day that he was confronting with this parable. Obviously the Pharisee. Does the parable suggest that Jesus approved of the prevailing religious beliefs of his day, or does he approve of the surprise hero of the story, the oddity 
that is meant to stun his audience of Jews, namely the tax collector. Which of the two persons in the parable evinces beliefs consistent with a religion of works righteousness? And which of the two evinces an appreciation of the fact that any acceptance he has at all with God is all of grace? The Pharisee points to his works for the reason God should accept him. If you doubt that characterization on my part, that the Pharisee adhered to a religion of works righteousness in Jesus' view, know how the parable opens in the gospel. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Note that the subject of the parable is who will be, re- who will be justified between these two men. Pharisee, standing in the shoes not only of the paragon of prevailing religious Jewish custom, but serving as a foil to subvert and overthrow the expectations of his audience, the Jews of the Second Temple period. So, when you look at the scriptures as a whole, it's a lot harder to maintain the new perspective. Jesus' understanding of the Judaism of his day is what the church should be considering when the new perspective comes and says this was Paul's perspective. This was Paul's view of the Judaism of his day. And although both are equally authoritative in that they both carry divine authority, Jesus in his person and Paul by being his apostle, we need to be looking at what the New Testament says as a whole about Second Temple Judaism and, and understand it in that light. We are going to take the New Testament perspective on Second Temple Judaism. Okay, I didn't really leave any time for more questions. Please bring them to class next time. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, what we're going to do next period is talk more about what the report has to say as criticisms about the new perspective, some of their other arguments about, about that. And then by the last class in the term, last Sunday in November, we will move into the federal vision.